Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. Newspeak was the official language of Oceania and had been devised to meet the ideological needs of INGSOC, or English Socialism. In the year 1984, there was not as yet anyone who used Newspeak as his sole means of communication. It was expected that Newspeak would have finally superseded Oldspeak, or Standard English as we should call it, by about the year 2050. It was intended that when Newspeak had been adopted once and for all, and Oldspeak forgotten, a heretical thought, that is, a thought diverging from the principles of Ingsoc, should be literally unthinkable. This was done partly by the invention of new words, but chiefly by eliminating undesirable words. All words grouping themselves round the concepts of liberty and equality, for instance, were contained in the single word crime-think. Only a person thoroughly grounded in Ingsog could appreciate the full force of the word belly feel, which implied a blind, enthusiastic acceptance difficult to imagine today, or of the word old think, which was inextricably mixed up with the idea of wickedness and decadence. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. What you just heard was a selection from George Orwell's classic novel, 1984. And in that clip, the concept of newspeak was introduced and defined. While some words had to be entirely eliminated from Orwell's dystopian world, other words needed to be invented in order to convey the new ideas which Ingsoc wished to promote. Among the list of the newly invented terms authorized for public use in Oceania, was this word bellyfeel. According to Orwell, bellyfeel was defined as any kind of blind, enthusiastic acceptance. Now, this happens to be relevant to the question I'll be investigating on this episode. 
Though the word belly feel isn't currently in wide use today, though perhaps this may change by the year 2050, the concept it conveys is actually rather popular. To give an example of this from the world of pop culture, I'd like you to listen to this audio clip from the inaugural episode of The Colbert Report, which featured the then faux-conservative commentator Stephen Colbert. You're looking at a straight shooter, America. I tell it like it is. I calls them like I sees them. I will speak to you in plain, simple English. And that brings us to tonight's word. Truthiness. Now, I'm sure some of the word police, the wordanistas over at Webster's, are going to say, hey, that's not a word. Well, anybody who knows me know that I'm no fan of dictionaries or reference books. They're elitist constantly telling us what is or isn't true or what did or didn't happen. Who's Britannica to tell me the Panama Canal was finished in 1914? If I want to say it happened in 1941, that's my right. I don't trust books. They're all fact, no heart. And that's exactly what's pulling our country apart today. We are divided between those who think with their head and those who know with their heart. Because that's where the truth comes from, ladies and gentlemen. The gut. Do you know you have more nerve endings in your stomach than in your head? Look it up. Now, somebody's going to say, I did look that up, and it's wrong. Well, mister, that's because you looked it up in a book. Next time, try looking it up in your gut. I did. And my gut tells me that's how our nervous system works. Now, I know some of you may not trust your gut yet, but with my help, you will. The truthiness is anyone can read the news to you. I promise to feel the news at you. particular episode first aired back in October of 2005, and by the following year, truthiness ended up being added to the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, which also declared it to be the word of the year. Here's the way this dictionary ended up defining truthiness. Quote, a truthful or seemingly truthful quality that is claimed for something, not because of supporting facts or evidence, but because of a feeling that it's true, or a desire for it to be true. According to Wikipedia, truthiness is the belief or assertion that a particular statement is true based on the intuition or perceptions of some individual or individuals without regard to evidence, logic, intellectual examination, or facts. Now, Orwell invented the word belly feel over 70 years ago as part of the fictional universe he created for his dystopian novel, and Stephen Colbert invented the word truthiness 17 years ago in his parody of television news commentators. But in each of these cases, the same underlying reality was being addressed. For Orwell, Bellyfeel was a blind, enthusiastic acceptance of something based primarily on an internal feeling that one gets in his or her belly. And for Colbert, truthiness describes convictions that are ultimately derived not from books or external facts of any kind, but rather from a person's gut feelings. Now, what I find particularly striking about all this is that which Orwell and Colbert each parodied in their own unique ways seems to be the predominant view of faith among all the various Christians I recently interviewed in a variety of settings. Listen, for example, to the number of individuals in the following audio clips who associate faith 
with their own internal feelings. I'm doing a podcast and I'm asking one question, simple question. What is faith? How do you define what it is? Like, what is it? What's what faith? faith? Yeah, yeah, it's a feeling. It's a feeling? Yeah. Yes, it's a feeling in your heart. Yeah, and in your head. Faith is trusting in Jesus. Even though you can't see him, you can feel him, experience him. You can see him move in our lives. Oh, yeah. So faith is just relying on a higher power. There are a lot of religious options. So why this faith? I believe it because right now while I'm still standing here speaking to you, I can feel the Holy Spirit within me. So I hope that he's giving me the right words to say, but I can feel the Holy Spirit inside me. According to the Bible, faith is being sure of something that you cannot see, but you can feel it, that is real. So that's what I believe. So Jesus is the right way because you feel it. Not only feel, but I know. It's something supernatural. I don't see Jesus every day, but I feel him. So I think that would be probably what you're talking about. Like, oh, why do I believe in someone that I don't see every day? Is that what you're talking about? Feeling. Yeah. I don't know. This is a super interesting conversation. (laughs) I've never had, like, this this is good. If you could put it in your own words, what do you think faith is? It's just a feeling that I always had, like, growing up. I just had a connection to him. Um, It was something that was inside of me. Um, It's just a a gut thing, a heart thing, something internal that is of the supernatural and can't really be explained. Faith is believing what you can't see, so even though you can't see him, you you feel him, you feel like his presence. What in your view is faith? Uh, Having passion in something. Passion. Yeah. Why do you think the Bible's the right holy book? Um, just by following God's word. I mean, I just... Try it. You like it kind of thing? Yeah. But couldn't a Muslim at a mosque say something similar, like, I was raised in Islam? Oh, yeah. It all depends on what you're raised in. I mean, the Quran is their holy Bible, and, like, our, our Bible is our holy Bible, so... Why are you convinced that the weight of evidence stands in favor of the Bible as opposed to all the other holy books? That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit testifies to the truth within your heart. Is that a feeling? Yeah, it is a feeling. Something fake that's not something loving and kind can't give you that emotion. My faith comes from experience. I, I know there is a God. I've just never doubted that. It's kind of hard to put into words unless, unless you feel it. It's like yeah. a feeling. Like That's yeah. how I think it is. I definitely think faith is a feeling because you just... You don't know what faith is until you know. Like, I had no idea until I was like, holy crap. Like, that was literally, like, my aha moment when I got saved. I was like, where has this faith been in my whole life? It's like it's just a feeling that you can't really describe. Like, I don't think anyone could really put it into words. Because it's just that overwhelming feeling. As I mentioned in previous episodes, the overwhelming majority of the Christians I interviewed over the past few months expressed the view that faith is a kind of blind leap. But as it turns out, most of these same individuals also affirmed the idea that faith is somehow related to our feelings. But is this really the case? Does the Bible support this view? Is faith a feeling? One of the 
difficulties with trying to investigate this question using the original Greek and Hebrew terms is that there are actually a variety of words that end up being translated into the English word feeling. And typically this only occurs in a variety of paraphrased translations, such as the Amplified Bible. For example, according to the ESV translation of Mark 8.38, Jesus spoke of those who were ashamed of him. And yet, according to a more contemporary rendering of this verse, Jesus referred to those who had a feeling of shame. So in light of this, it's actually easier to search for all the occurrences of the word feeling throughout all the various English translations. But as it turns out, I wasn't able to find a single occurrence of the word feeling anywhere near the word faith in the ESV, NIV, NRSV, NASB, King James, New King James, and a host of other respected translations. Even when I searched for any version of the root word feel and substituted alternative words for faith, such as faithful, belief, believer, etc., I still couldn't find a single passage in which faith and feelings were within 200 words of each other. Now, there were instances in some of the more contemporary translations in which variations of these words appeared in the same verse. For example, according to the ESV, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, dot, 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 a paraphrased translation known as the message renders this way. Now that Timothy is back bringing this terrific report on your faith and your love, we feel a lot better. That's obviously a much looser rendering of the passage, but you see the point that in this verse, we do find the word feel in close proximity to the word faith. But even in these very loose translations, nowhere do we find this idea that faith rests on a person's internal feelings. In fact, the only passage I could find that actually comes close to this is a rendering of a verse we mentioned on the last episode from John chapter 20. This is the scene in which Jesus appears to doubting Thomas, and according to a translation by Richard Weymouth, Jesus says, Bring your finger here and feel my hands. Bring your hand and put it into my side. Do not be ready to disbelieve, but to believe. It's clear that in this passage, faith doesn't end up coming as a result of some kind of internal gut feeling. Rather, for Thomas, it came as the result of seeing Jesus with his eyes, hearing him with his ears, and touching him with his hands. In other words, Thomas responded to visible and tangible facts related to the external world rather than to his own inner feelings. Now, as it happens, there are a few scriptural passages outside of the Christian religion which lend support to this idea that faith is sometimes confirmed by internal feelings. The most famous, of course, is the Mormon claim that true believers experience a burning in their bosom. This language has its source in a revelation that Joseph Smith gave back in April of 1829, and which can be found in a portion of the Mormon scriptures known as Doctrine and Covenants. In sections 7 and 9 of this revelation, God reportedly says, quote, Cast your mind upon the night that you cried to me in your heart, that you might know concerning the truth of these things. Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? What greater witness can you have than from God? Behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right, and if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore you shall feel that it is right. But if it be not right, you shall have no such feelings. You see, according to Joseph Smith, God confirms the truth of his own latter-day revelations through internal means, specifically through an experience of peace or through the burning one feels in his or her bosom. Now, of course, some could say that both of these ideas also appear in the Bible. In various places, Jesus promises to give his followers peace. And in Luke 24, 
The two disciples on the road to Emmaus did experience warm feelings in their hearts as their resurrected Jesus opened up the scriptures to them. But of course, it should be pointed out that experiences of this kind are never presented as the justification for belief itself. In fact, later in Luke 24, Jesus appeared to all the disciples and said, quote, Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself? Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In this passage, it seems clear that Jesus is resolving doubts and increasing faith not by internal subjective means, but by objective and external criteria. Now, there does happen to be a verse in the Quran that is somewhat similar to the Mormon doctrine of the burning in the bosom. According to one translation, the passage I'm referring to says this, quote, Believers are those who, when Allah is mentioned, feel a tremor in their heart, and when his revelations are recited, find their faith strengthened. And as I mentioned on a previous episode, when Muhammad himself requested external signs to confirm the inspired nature of his revelations, Allah simply instructed the prophet to say, quote, I am but a public preacher. Is it not enough that we have given the book that is recited to them? In 1995, a man by the name of Neil Donald Walsh published a book titled Conversations with God, in which he claimed that God had actually communicated with him directly. Listen, for example, to this selection from an audio edition of the book, in which Ed Asner plays the part of God. My truth about God comes from you. Who said so? Ministers, rabbis, priests, books, the Bible, for heaven's sake. Those are not authoritative sources. Then what is? Listen to your feelings. Listen to your highest thoughts. Listen to your experience. Whenever any of these differ from what you've been told by your teachers or read in your books, forget the words. Words are the least reliable purveyor of truth. The irony, of course, is that this entire conversation was itself expressed through words and became a part of a best-selling book. But the key point expressed in that conversation was this idea that none of us should trust anything we've learned from external sources like books. Instead, we should all trust our own internal feelings. But if you think about it, this was precisely the kind of thing that Stephen Colbert parodied when he invented the word truthiness to describe those whose beliefs were founded not on factual information found in books, but on one's own internal gut feelings. Now, back in 2006, when truthiness was voted word of the year by Merriam-Webster's, CBS journalist Dick Meyer wrote a thoughtful column in which he attempted to trace the origin of some of the ideas that were being expressed by this new term. Here's what he wrote. Truthiness actually has a long philosophical pedigree. It's called emotivism, a term resurrected by Scottish philosopher Alistair MacIntyre, who defines it this way, quote, Emotivism is the doctrine that all evaluative judgments, and more specifically all moral judgments, are nothing but expressions of preference, attitude, or feeling. In this view, there is no difference between saying, the death penalty is wrong, and I don't like the death penalty. Truth today is just what you feel. For deep and serious truth-tellers, truth is what they feel strongly. In today's civic climate, Meyer continues, you can pick the facts and concepts you wish to be true. Indeed, personally picking what truth to believe in is assumed to be a basic right, the very thing individuals ought to do if they are making their own authentic choices. In his 2014 book, God and the Whirlwind, David Wells observed that in our day, a person's own interior reality is all that counts, 
and it is untouched by any obligation to community or understanding from the past, or even by the intrusions of God from the outside. This is therapeutic deism, whose morals are self-focused and self-generated, end quote. Well, according to Alexis de Tocqueville, this spirit has actually been with us for quite some time. In his book, Democracy in America, first published back in 1838, de Tocqueville highlighted some of the traits that distinguished Americans from their European counterparts. Listen to a summary of the American democratic approach to intellectual pursuits. To escape from imposed systems, to treat tradition as valuable for information only, and to accept existing facts as no more useful than a sketch to show how things could be done differently, to seek by themselves and in themselves for the only reason for things, looking to results without getting entangled in the means toward them, such are the principal characteristics of what I would call the American philosophical method. As a result of this approach, de Tocqueville says that Americans are continually brought back to their own judgment as the most apparent and accessible test of truth. Americans, he says, have needed no books to teach them philosophic method, having found it in themselves. Each man, he says, is forever thrown back on himself alone, and there is a danger that he may be shut up in the solitude of his own heart. According to David Wells, over time, the new therapeutic preoccupations of the me generation would, of course, seep into the church, although in less glaring and more sanitized versions. Looking back on this time, Wade Clark Roof said that one of the defining marks of the boomer generation was its distinction between the inward and outward aspects of religion. Credence was given to that which is internal, not to church doctrine, which others had formulated, not to church authority, indeed, not to any external authority at all. Rather, it is in private intuitions that God is found. End quote. So I recently had the opportunity to discuss some of these matters with Craig Parton, who is the author of a fantastic book titled Religion on Trial. Craig happens to be a trial lawyer at the oldest law firm in the western United States, located in Santa Barbara, California. I went to law school at Hastings and San Francisco University, California, and then uh, took a job at the firm that I'm at now. I've never practiced anywhere else. I have a, a wide-ranging litigation practice. I'm chairman of the department here um, and litigate all kinds of cases. I, I've defended people that have had their horses doped for the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> so uh, that's a <laughs> wide variety of things that come up. Do you ever have the, the experience as you're uh, involved in a trial where a, a witness is put on stand and they say, I, I don't have any evidence, I can't prove this, but I just know in my heart X, Y, or Z, or I feel it, I feel that it's true? Well, if, if they're my witness, I, I would have clubbed them over the head because <laughs> by the time they, they say that, there'd be an objection that this is irrelevant what you feel in your heart. The question is, what have you seen with your eyes, heard with your ears, and can testify to based on personal exposure to the, the facts of yeah. the case? I know in my profession as a trial lawyer that reality is always stranger than what we assume. I mean, facts are the ultimate arbitrator of the right interpretation. And so you gather them like you did in that, that effort uh, with your dad and Billy Joel 
that was a fascinating story about your dad. <laughs> you know, you, you think there's no way that this can be harmonized, right. these two things. Sometimes you require logical consistency from facts, and they're they're just not. Yeah. They they just establish wacky things. Yeah. And you've got to go with them. I just heard an interview with Christian Smith where he was saying something to that effect. Like uh, he's a sociologist and he was saying how part of the problem is that we assume people are always going to be rational. <laughs> it's like, right. well, yeah, that's, that's a basic assumption I have. And I shouldn't have that assumption. Right, <laughs> right, right, exactly. And facts lead you on wild chases sometimes. And that's right. Because you had some situations there where it looked really contradictory at points yeah like those are never going to be resolved yeah and they get resolved because the world of fact is stranger than than the world we make up of logical consistency and the interesting thing about that story is that you know even billy joel's own website had summarized the wrong information you'd think his website would be a reliable place for a strict timeline of events and when i found out that Actually, they got it wrong. That was like, oh, okay, that can happen. But the only way to really get there is to keep pulling on the threads. Right. And it's things that look like they're contradictory. Uh, When you get into the fine grain and really do your homework on them, you find out that facts stand by themselves. And you don't throw away a fact and disregard one when trying to determine whether religion is correct or not. You accept and go with what the facts say and you develop an interpretation that fits the facts. You've got to have a content that you're speaking to Mm. rather than a conviction. Some of the the greatest liars in the world are absolutely convinced that they're telling the truth. Well, and everyone uh, believes deep in their heart that their religion of choice is the right way. That's their worldview. That's their operating assumption. So they believe it deeply, but they can't all be right, right? They can't all be right. And It's really an issue of logical inconsistency amongst the world's uh, religions. And uh, we we would do well to prod and question people in terms of how they know their religion is true, rather than they just know it is because it's changed their life. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot lot of crazy stuff can change your life. That's right. You You go on television and hear some of the advertisements for stuff and you think, um, these people are sincere that this has worked and changed their life, but it, it's based on some pretty wacky uh, principles. Same with world religions. Um, they, they can't all be right. They could all be wrong. I mean, we have to open ourselves up to that. That's right. And here in Santa Barbara, honestly, I think we have we have 100,000 people. We have 100,000 religions. That kind of reminds me of that line from uh, Robert Bella and his colleagues in his book, that wonderful book in the mid-80s, Habits of the Heart. Yeah. They speak about this one nurse by the name of Sheila who described her own faith as Sheilaism. And as they talked with her, she says, I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. And then the authors go on to write that, you know, This suggests the logical possibility of over 220 million American religions, one for each one of us. Yes. And and I think that fundamentally is human nature. Mm. We we all want to ultimately justify what we do. And we're looking for some system that will justify us. That's a great point. Christianity comes around and says, very sorry to give you this news. First, there's some very bad news. 
you by yourself is a very, very bad source of authority. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is a God and you are not he. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, yeah. but there's, there's a whole different way of looking at this. And central to these questions is how you determine which religion is true. The discussions you hear nowadays is your comment, the Shilaism. I feel it in my heart. It works for me. I hold it privately. And let's not question whether factually I might be up, up a creek without a paddle. Let me just pause this conversation for a moment to recommend that if you've never read Habits of the Heart by Robert Bella and his colleagues, I highly recommend that you order a copy through the link I've provided in the show notes section of this episode. You'll also find a link to a lecture that Robert Bella gave not long after the book was first published. And in that talk, he elaborated on the point about Sheilaism, saying, quote, The case of Sheila isn't confined to people who haven't been to church in a long time. On the basis of our interviews and a great deal of other data, I think we can say that many people sitting in the pews of Protestant and even Catholic churches are Sheilaists who feel that religion is essentially a private matter and that there is no particular constraint on them placed by the historic church or even by the Bible. The point Bella seemed to be making there was that the kind of narcissistic spirituality that Sheila Larson personified so well for us isn't merely something that's happening out there in the world at large. Rather, he's saying that it's actually happening everywhere, including within the walls of many Protestant and Catholic churches. Okay, back to my conversation with Craig Parton. Many people, you say, claim to arrive at the truth through their own subjective religious experiences. What do you think is wrong with this approach? Um, there's as many subjective experiences as there are people in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but worldviews are, are not things that uh, you, you just uh, tinker with uh, in your study and they're removed from real life. They demand responses from you and a lifestyle from you and decisions from you. And Christian science is what I, um, my experiences with, that was so destructive in our family in terms of just hmm. the ability to understand reality, living in a world where you deny the existence of evil and illness. So you never go to a, I didn't go to a doctor till I was 20. Wow. And, uh, you know, the, the destructive impact of a worldview that has lifestyle choices associated with it. This is real life, you know, rubber soul kinds of stuff. But just trying out a religion has psychological, moral, physical uh, consequences uh, because they ask you to commit to them with your whole person. Scientology is an example of it. You get in there and get going on, on their system and go through an audit. Um, I can tell you from talking to enough people who have been involved in that, psychologically, they never get over some aspects wow. of it. Ever. Wow. It's just that powerful of, of an experience of what they're dealing with. Yeah, I've seen some documentaries on that, and you're right. It's almost a traumatic experience that they recite, you know, because Scientology itself is very cult-like. It's in a, in a way, it's kind of a mini totalitarianism. Yes, you know, you're you're in this system that is very, very structured and organized, and if you try to opt out of the system, they take your kids and your family away. Right, right. So, so worldviews are to be 
avoided until you can check them out. This, this again goes to what evidence is there that I should start with you? Um, you, you have a holy book, you have an authority. Well, welcome to the club. Christianity has the Bible. Muslims have the Quran, uh, the Book of Mormon for Mormons, Mary Baker Eddy Science and Health Key to the Scriptures for Christian Scientists. Um, everybody has an authority. The, the question is, will the real authority please stand up? Yeah. And if you look at the, uh, the average secular naturalist, you know, their heart becomes their authority, their individual right. ethical choices. Uh, but then we're back to Sheilaism. As we look around, we see, well, this individualistic Sheilaistic approach is just making the world more and more chaotic. I'm not sure that's helpful either. <laughs> yeah. We do need to be careful, though, that Christianity has brought changes to people and culture over the centuries, which we should expect to be the case if it's true. I mean, it's not just an intellectual commitment, but it, it is a changing of the entire person, a new creature, Right. Second Corinthians talks about. There are profound impacts that Christianity has had on society for the positive. Yep. Which we should expect if it's true. Right. Yeah. You, you can have wonderful feelings and wonderful responses and experiences with the truth. You could just also have those similar experiences with counterfeit bills. I mean, if I took a counterfeit right. bill to the store, you know, and if it was a big enough bill, I could have a lot of fun experiences if they accepted yeah. it. But right. the experience doesn't make it a true bill. Right. And that, unfortunately, is the diet of so many people. Uh, and then, then something tragic will happen to them eventually that shows that hanging on to that religious position for the feeling it gives was a dead end. And unfortunately, Christians fall prey to this, that it's got to be upward and onward, that they're going to be blessed either financially or through something else. Yeah, sometimes when you're having your worst life now, you end up just ditching the faith because it's not what Joel Osteen promised. <laughs> right, right, right. That's exactly uh the case, it's not all great and fun and wonderful. And yet there's a book in the Bible, I think it's called the Book of Job, where it, it does sort of say, no, sometimes you will have your worst life now and God's still in charge, yeah. doesn't undermine the whole thing. Exactly, exactly. So now I recently recorded uh, a whole bunch of man on the street interviews with a variety of Christians in a whole bunch of different settings. And I'd like you to listen to some of these clips and then respond. Faith is uh, something you can't see, but you can feel, like the wind blowing. You don't see it, but you can feel it pushing at your skin and coming out of nowhere. So how do you know you're in the right faith, the true faith? Because um, I'd say it's a, you know, a unction from the spirit from within. So you have that guiding spirit within that will actually you know, tell you, you know, go left, go right, stop, be careful. So I would say uh, when you're, you're into that, engaged in the spirit with that relationship with Jesus Christ, that it's, it's uh, very clear. In my case, I was born Seventh-day Adventist. My parents taught me this, and now I'm convicted that what I'm doing is correct. So how did you get there? It was the personal experience with God. There, there are a lot of different faiths. A lot of people believe in a lot of different things. So why do you believe the Bible and in Jesus, and what convinced you that it's true? Because he is faithful, because we pray and he answers our prayers, and um, there's no question about it to us that he is who he says he is. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut, just that, yeah, that it's right. It's the right way. And so far, I haven't been wrong.
I have to say, after all the interviews that I recorded, I did get a few good responses, but what you just heard was the most common response that I got. You know, Christianity is true because I know deep down inside, I feel that I've experienced it. How would you assess those kinds of answers? I think the the problem is this use of the word faith. It's become the trophy prize that trumps all other discussion about why you would choose a religion. You've got to have faith. There's very little discussion about the fact that faith is a relational term. Faith is only as valid as the object of what the faith is directed to. Yeah. Um, So faith in faith, I have faith, means absolutely nothing. It's misleading. Christianity doesn't put value in faith as uh, a term. It's in relation and in reliance on the person and work of Christ. That's the value of it. Yeah, it's the object of our faith. In fact, the word itself has to do with trusting something that is inherently trustworthy. Right, right. We need to push back a little bit and and get people to think more deeply of this. Um, You can have all the faith in the world, but if the object is is non-existent, you're in trouble. You can have faith that your airplane is being flown by uh, a four-year-old pilot, uh, and all the faith in the world isn't going to get you anywhere in the airplane. You want to see the pilots walking on that look like they're adults, that have the uniform on, that look like they know what they're doing, that walked around the outside of the airplane before it flew off. It's interesting, isn't it, that one of the respondents claimed that her own experience with God proved to her that her own Seventh-day Adventism that she was raised in was true. But this is a group that, in addition to believing the Old and New Testaments, also happens to believe that a person named Ellen White was an inspired prophet. Uh, They claim that she was on the par with John the Baptist. And yet Mormon missionaries, too, will also tell you that they know Joseph Smith was an, an inspired prophet because, you know, they talk about the burning in the bosom, which confirms their internal testimony. So, first of all, why would a feeling confirm the status of either Joseph Smith or Ellen White? That doesn't make sense. But then how do you arbitrate between these competing claims? Yeah, that's right. And, and again, I think it's critical for those that are dealing with this stuff and people like this all the time and at your doorstep or wherever, tell me what fact would have to be present for you to deny and walk away from Mormonism? If the answer is there is none, there are none, save your efforts in discussion for someone else, because these are people who are in a situation where they will believe their position regardless of what the facts say. Right. And it's, again, an opportunity to, to emphasize the distinctive nature of Christianity. The fact is, is that Christianity is a fact-based claim. Yep. I'd like to get your comments on this next clip featuring a Pentecostal Christian believer. When you have a personal relationship with Jesus and he lives inside of you, you can feel his presence inside of you. And that's how I know that it's true because I've been to many Holy Ghost services and like the Holy Spirit made me fall over. But it's interesting you ask because I have a good friend that he's from India. I think he's a devout Hindu. And we've had conversations like this, too, because he'll say, well, I believe this and I've known this my whole life. What what makes your faith or your Christianity 
right versus mine is not right. And with things like that, I just try to talk about like what God's done for me, how I've personally experienced him without like saying that the other person is necessarily wrong. It's definitely a challenge to talk about. Interesting, isn't it, Craig, that uh, though this person was convinced of the truth of her religion by means of her own experience, she also later realized that her experience wasn't really convincing to her Hindu friend. Right, right. The the perceived benefit of giving your testimony and telling people what's going on internally is it can't be refuted, Shane. It can't be refuted, but it also often isn't accepted. They just go, huh, interesting for you. Exactly. That's the double-edged sword to it. No one's going to tell you, no, you didn't have that experience. But there's no basis for somebody coming around and saying, well, that must mean it's true. Because people can have their life changed. They can lose weight. They can have a wonderful family life in Mormonism. They can lower their blood pressure through Eastern meditative techniques. All that has been proven to, to show that that can happen. But it doesn't have anything to do with the, the truth question. Like, how do I know this religion is taking me on the right road? Yeah. And, and that's what we, we fundamentally need to get back to, asking those questions. When you revert to testimonies, you're bringing Christianity down to a cultic experience. This kind of, you, you'll get it if you enter into it. You'll get this burning feeling also in your heart. That once you do that, you've turned this discussion into who's got the more powerful experience, who can verify it the best internally. That is not the message of Christianity. It's that there's good news. It's an actual factual religion that is based on certain things being the case. And it's beyond your internal response to it. Well, thanks for joining me for this edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. For more information, head to HumbleSkeptic.com. That's HumbleSkeptic.com. As always, if you're a fan of the show, please share it with friends and family members and consider writing a positive review via the Apple Podcast app or your favorite podcast portal. This program is now available via Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and many other places, so be sure to let others know about that as well. A quick thanks to those of you who've helped support this program by putting something in the tip jar or by subscribing through Substack. It's a little daunting to step out on your own and to create something new, and your gifts have helped out a great deal. Thanks so much, and I'll look forward to being with you again next time on the Humble Skeptic Podcast as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. have experienced Christianity, but there are a lot of people who have experienced other faiths. Why do you think you have the right holy book and the right God? That's a very good question, yeah. And I've, you know, it's not like I've sheltered myself and had only Christian friends. Like, I've had, you know, atheistic friends, agnostic friends. I've had, you know, just people from the LGBTQ plus community, you know, just being friends with them, even Muslims. Um, 
Buddhist. My own mom grew up in a Buddhist family. Pretty sure um, my grandma, her mom, is still Buddhist. Um, and I even attended a session on Mormonism <laughs> with a couple Mormons. Um, so just being culturally aware, yes, it's very important. Um, and so I just have started growing you know, more of an appreciation for the religion that I have had, for the religion that I grew up with, that even if I had, you know, even if I've been exposed to other religions, I know that I feel most at peace because I've had God with me all my life. Is that why you know it's true? Because an internal feeling of peace? Yes. Just, um, I think just having that peace, that serenity, like even now, I am literally an hour late into this concert, waiting on people who have my ticket to get in. And I still have that peace and that patience to sit here and to just take in the beauty of what's around me. And participate in the podcast. <laughs> and that, that was, that was a surprise. Uh-huh. Yeah.